This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we've got some special guests for this bonus episode. They can't speak on air, but they're in the chat because we're recording live. Talking about Fahrenheit 451. By Raymond Bradbury. Ray Douglas Bradbury. Is his name actually Raymond or is it just Ray? Let me double check. (laughs) Okay. Well, good. It is just Ray. All right. Ray Bradbury. Ray, just Ray Douglas Bradbury. We've talked about him a couple other times. I read Something Wicked This Way comes, and you read The Martian Chronicles. Yeah, I read The Martian Chronicles. Um, That was episode 28 of our show. So if you are listening to this episode and you have done the due diligence to go back that far, I apologize to your ears. And I thank you for your patronage <laughs> and your dedication to the audio format of podcasts. I basically like there's a I make no promises about anything more than like 30 episodes old. I just I think just like on a rolling sort of basis. Oh, sh- oh no, that's that's valid because we all we all change as people over time. And I can't account for what two years ago Andrew did or said <laughs> about anything. That's or whether true. his he recorded with the wrong mic on any given episode, like I don't know. Well, and this podcast is technically t- part of November. Imagine that it is still November, and that we had time around the Turkey holiday to record this podcast instead of recording it in the beginning of no- December, which we definitely are not doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is still technically part of books we've read month stuff mm-hmm. we've read month. And we are going to talk about a book that both of us have read. I read it sophomore year of high school, and I remembered nothing about it. it was oh, weird. Of, in that same class, we read this. We read Lord of the Flies, and um, and I think there was another one that's kind of... in Oh, Gatsby. We read Gatsby in that class, too. And all three of them were books that I came away not liking that much because I was not old enough to get it at all. <laughs> Sure. Or not like maybe not old enough, just like not not willing to engage with it enough or something like it, it's not like I didn't like reading and enjoy reading. It's just I read these and and I think some of the like in for in in this book in particular, there's like a lot of sort of floaty stuff where you're not you're you kind of come unmoored in space and time a few times. His writing and, style very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And and so maybe, I think that's maybe what I was bouncing off of at the time. But when when did you read it? Did you I, actually read it, or did you get assigned it and then fake it like you did for so many other things? I did read it. I read it in eighth grade, actually, Whoa. and that was also the same year that we were reading Lord of the Flies. And I think we were given the option as a class to pick, and I like the the class chose Fahrenheit 451. I read that and then also read Lord of the Flies. Okay. Um, and then I read it again in high school 
I think before my junior year, there was a year where I applied to get into a creative writing program. And I did uh-huh. a bad job applying, and I didn't get in. <laughs> Wait, what? What did you? How? What did you mean? I wrote a bad story. I what was the story about? I think it was about. No, a... you don't think it was about. You know exactly what it was. Well, about. I don't know what the you wake up in a were. cold sweat to this day thinking about what that story was about. <laughs> I think it was about a selfish dude who learns to be not selfish at a soup kitchen. I think that's. <laughs> I'm fairly certain. That's what it was. The classic hero's journey. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I think I think I probably had more empathy for him back then than I would have now. <laughs> um and so the day that I got this uh rejection from the governor's school of Pennsylvania, I was very sad <laughs> and I asked my I don't know, I was out with my mom and we went by the bookstore. I bought the copy of this book about burning books to uh-huh. make myself feel <laughs> you better. You were just books that hurt you <laughs> and so you wanted to hurt them back. Uh and then I uh, Graham is suggesting that you hack my computer and find this document. I don't think I think that computer is in the garbage, whatever I wrote this story on. So good luck. Mm, I never, likely a uh, likely story. You probably have to find it on like the governor's school servers. You could probably find it. Um, interesting interesting and then i read it again after college i think i've read this book a number of times um it's good it's a good book (laughs) well there you have it folks (laughs) that's the podcast um andrew you looked up a little bit about the history of the book but we've done i want to get to that we've done bradbury's history before Mm-hmm. So, if you want like a slightly deeper dive and some of the background around something wicked this way comes, I'd recommend going and listening to that episode. Um, it's worth remembering that he was born in 1920. He died in 2012. He was a big fan of like turn of the 20th century pulp, almost pulp fiction, like sci- science fiction writers like H.G. Mm-hmm. Wells and Burroughs and Verne. Um, his first story, Bradbury's, that was ever published was Hollerbachen's Dilemma in 1938. And he used the whatever he earned from that to go to the first world science fiction convention ever in New York City. Or that's what it was called. First world science fiction convention. Was it the f- first first world? <laughs> was it the inaugural yes, first world science fiction convention? it was not for the convention? first world. Okay. It was the inaugural uh, in 1939, as part of the New York World's Fair, it had 200 participants. No okay. word on what costumes they dressed up in. Pre-internet, that's pretty good. I that think. is pretty good. I think it helped that it was part of the World's Fair. Um, Isaac Asimov was there, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, he then sold his first story, The Lake, at age 22. He had a collection called The Dark Carnival come out in 1947. Whoop, whoop. And then... <laughs> Don't do that juggle. <laughs> And then he went on to be like a lifelong writer. He has he's done some playwriting. Uh, he wrote this book came out of him writing a short story called The Fireman while he was in California. He would go into the UCLA library where you could rent a typewriter by the half hour. So to write his the first draft of this book, it cost him nine dollars and eighty cents because it was ten cents on the half hour so i think that's something like what is that five hours to write this book the first draft 
something like that. I don't know. I can't do time math. Um, yeah, I, the Kindle edition I read had, had an afterword I was, I was reading and it was saying that, um, some of the imagery, like some of the ideas about book burning and censorship and stuff had the, had their roots in this, um, short story he wrote in like 46, 47 that, that never saw the light of day and, and exists only in fragments now called where ignorant armies clash by night. But yeah, that one was more, um, it was more. Like where Fahrenheit 451 is like a warped and twisted version of what we could head to now if things went a certain way. Um, Ignorant Armies, I think, was more of explicitly like post-apocalyptic. And um, there was like there there is this class of like assassins who burn books. And one of them is tasked with like burning what is thought to be the last extant copy of Shakespeare's works and he can't and then he becomes a fugitive. So it's it's like the story has a sort of similar shape, but this was like six or seven years before Fahrenheit and um, and obviously Fahrenheit is the one that made its publication. Yeah, and it was published in 1953. Uh, It received a, a... One of the retro Hugos in 1954, which was given retro in 2004. The ret- was that like for a book that was published before the Hugo Awards were a thing? Or yes, what? I believe okay. that is true. The retro right. Hugos. That's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so it was written in 1953. So it's got like it's just coming out of World War II. You know, the kind of Red Scare stuff is getting underway even as World War II is coming to a close. Uh, and you're wondering about, like, rooting out communists. And I think in, I think in one of the afterwards, he talks about, like, the blacklist and the House Committee on American Activities and that type of censorship. But something right. that I think you and I are both going to want to talk about is how this book is actually the censorship is democratized <laughs> like yeah right <laughs> it is decentralized censorship at least how it mm-hmm. begins um beginning in 1996 retrospective hugo awards or retro hugos have been available to be awarded for 50 75 or 100 years prior retro hugos may only be awarded in for years in which a world science fiction convention or world con was hosted but no awards were originally given so yeah kind of kind of what we said and then kind of a little bit more as is always the case. Yes. To, to date, Retro Hugo Awards have been given for novels for 1939, 41, 46, 51, and 54. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, anything else about the book that you wanted to hit before we kind of dive in? Um, there was a cool thing about one of the earlier printings of it. So the first printing in the U.S. was a paperback edition, which I think probably says something about the... Um, hey treatment of of science fiction at the time is that the paperback version was the first thing that came out but um after the paperback came out there was a hardback version and within that publication was a special edition of 200 signed and numbered copies that are actually bound in asbestos oh which aside from the thing where asbestos can give you cancer which i don't think they knew back then that's kind of cool because it's fireproof you know yeah that's kind of neat yeah, dig it. so like just try and burn these books, uh, those books basically <laughs> say, like, come okay. at me. Sure. <laughs> um, it's also, oh, I forgot about this. It's got a couple of incidents where this book about censorship has been censored. Um, there's one in 1987 where a, a school board in Florida um, 
put it on a list and and asked for it to be removed from the classroom for a lot of vulgarity. Um, it was like a tier based censorship. There was another one in California where they gave copies of the of the book to kids with all the quote obscene words blacked out. Right. Yeah. So in um in sixty seven, Ballantine Books, who was the oh that's right the mm-hmm. publisher of it. They released an edition aimed at high school students that um, censored words like hell and damn and abortion. I think those are all like swears we can use without earning the explicit tag on them. Yeah, I think so. Um, And modifying 75 passages and changing two episodes. Like just for example, a drunk man becomes a sick man. That's like the kind we're talking about like. Nintendo, Nintendo in, the, in the early 90s level like censorship <laughs> but uh Bradbury found out about it in uh, 79 and he was like hey stop it just stop it stop it you and just shook 19- a can of marbles at them and they stopped <laughs> yeah he filled a coffee can with pennies and stop it <laughs> in 1980 the original version became available once again and um Bradbury actually wrote an afterward where he talked about uh the process of expert expurgation expurgation yep the process by which a publisher goes through a book but i think the most famous one is right those 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 more recent pressings of goodnight moon that edit a cigarette out of the illustrator's hands like in the picture in the back of the book did you is know about that, that a one? thing no yeah, i didn't know yeah, about a that few years ago it, it was making the rounds oh man like, they don't want to encourage smoking in kids and so they photoshop a, a cigarette out of like a 50 year old picture of a dude it's wild <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, so let's talk about this book. Let's just get in there. Yeah. So for those of you who have listened to the show before, I think we've got some familiar faces in the in the chat. Um, we have both read the book this week. So normally the format is that I will read it or Craig will read it and then we'll talk about it to the other one. But for this one, it's a short book and we both wanted to read it again. So that's what we did. Yep. Uh, and if you in the chat uh, have any questions or thoughts along the way, toss them in there and we will try and work them in as best we can. Um, so the opening line of this book, Andrew, mm-hmm. which I forgot. I always forget how good it is. It opening was a pleasure. Be really, really amazing. It was a pleasure to burn. That's the opening line. That's it. And yeah. He really enjoys burning stuff. <laughs> Same, I guess. <laughs> And so we open on uh, a little like image of our main character, Guy Montag, uh, burning books in a house and thinking about burning books mm-hmm. and how it works. And he has these flamethrowers and uh, he's into it again. He, it he's pretty into it. He, so he is a fireman. And in this particular dystopia, a fireman has ceased to be a person who puts out fires and is now a person who starts fires mostly for purposes of getting rid of troublesome works of literature. Yeah. And so I don't think the book ever lays out exactly when it is. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, uh, like a fireman's handbook that insinuates that it goes back like all the way back to like 70, 1776 and that Benjamin Franklin was the first fireman. But um so captain Beatty is this this the chief of the fired station i guess and um through a long uh monologue to montag that i think we're going to talk about says yeah of course like that was changed later and and <laughs> yeah so yeah we don't know when it actually started but society has been altered to imply that it has been that way forever 
Yes. And the houses are all fireproof, um, I, which I think is a thing that can be undone. But there is like some sort of fireproof seal. And part of the fiction that society has accepted is that fire only needs to destroy things that we don't want. It, mm-hmm. it isn't a thing that we actually fear. Um, though at the same time, there is this kind of one of the things I like about this book and I've always liked about it is that you can kind of track some of these pretty pure symbols through it. So within a few pages of the book, you meet this new character, uh, Clarice McClellan, who's a teenage girl that lives in Montag's neighborhood. And she is uh, kind of a manic pixie dream girl. She is kind it's not the same. She's kind a bit of, rela- of a manic pixie dream girl, yeah. Yeah, there's not a relationship that happens. There's not a, a romantic thing that happens. I think a uh, guy is supposed to be thirty-ish, and uh, she's obviously a teenager. And it doesn't yeah, go I think into that she's territory. Sixteen or seventeen, I yeah. Think. But she is different. She isn't like all the other kids. She doesn't really belong, and that's a really good opportunity to like introduce some things about the world that she is different from like she is not like all the kids who just go to school and get four hours of learning quote unquote from a tv and then play basketball and then go off and smash things Mm -hmm. like uh, i think kids just go out and smash stuff in this universe yeah there are a lot of like there something people do to blow off steam is just go out and drive and drive so fast that all you can think about is how dangerous it is (laughs) and that's like the distraction it's a cultural it's a it's a culture where where your media just screams at you so you don't have to think about anything yeah there's a there's a later section where because guy takes like the subway everywhere or the the train or whatever it is he's in some sort of midwestern town it could be chicago it's unclear (laughs) um and there's like an ad for something dentrifice dentium's dentrifice or whatever it is denim's denim's dentrifice and he he can't get it out of his head like the ad is so present in the train he's trying to think on his own and he can't it actually reminds me of some of the stuff in Wrinkle in Time. Oh, I was going to say it reminds me of the uh, gum commercial running gag from Inside Out. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) You know, potato, potato. Mm -hmm. Um, And he... uh, So he meets this girl, Clarice, and the... What's interesting about Bradbury's writing, I don't know if you remember, have this feeling. I've read this book, obviously, I think a couple more times than you have, but... Some of the no, no, no. I'm just thinking, I was whatever. Um, (laughs) some of the my reactions to the prose, there's like a strong nostalgic pull, and part of it is just because I can. His prose has a quality of like conjuring an image that's not even quite a real thing, and so I remember the language in as much as I remember anything else. Like what kind of what kind of stuff are you talking about? I got a passage that I pulled for it's Clarice has introduced herself to Guy. She's kind of like poking at him, like why are you the way you are? He does he hasn't really thought this way in a long time, and he looks at her. And here's the passage. He saw himself in her eyes, suspended in two shining drops of bright water, himself dark and tiny in fine detail, the lines about his mouth, everything there, as if her eyes were two miraculous bits of violet amber that might capture and hold him intact. Her face, turned to him now, was fragile milk crystal, with a soft and constant light in it. It was not the hysterical light of electricity, 
but what? But the strangely comfortable and rare and gently flattering light of the candle. I remember, as soon as I read it, that he describes this girl looking like milk, and I don't know what it means. <laughs> but there's a milk thing to her. There's a milk um, thing, and he and he makes it work. Like here's another one. Um, here's another candle thing he uses for for guy. He felt his smile slide away, melt, fold over and down on itself like a tallow skin, like the stuff of a fantastic candle burning too long and now collapsing and now blown out. Darkness. He was not happy. He was not happy. He said the words to himself. He recognized this as the true state of affairs. He wore his happiness like a mask, and the girl had run off across the lawn with the mask, and there was no way of going to knock on her door and ask for it back. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's good writing. He's good at writing, I think, this guy. <laughs> this Mr. This Mr. Bradbury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think he's really gone somewhere. <laughs> but that, that gets to your point. You, you mentioned this earlier in the podcast that, like, Sometimes in the writing you can get a little where am I what is happening and it's he uses this type of language to make a metaphor literal and or you don't know if it's a metaphor or not in the moment um because his language is so evocative but right and and then then with guy like you you are in the head of an unreliable yes that's true <clears throat> and so he's like he says several times that his like his hands are doing something in a way that removes responsibility from he himself. Yes, that's true. And like there's there's like a dream sequence in there, and there are some sequences where his body it seems like won't do what he wants it to do. So it it's you just feel very unstable in his head. Like it's it's it doesn't feel like a safe place to be. That's I don't true. Guess. Uh, but w- the passage you just read got to the big plot point I wanted to get out of introducing Clarice is that she leaves this first scene with him having asked, are you happy? And I don't, I can't think of another dystopian book that just leads with the main character being told they're unhappy. And like, and then realizing it and being like, yeah, I guess you're right. (laughs) And he, he goes home and he meets, we meet his wife, Millie, who is basically listening to an iPhone. Like, She's got these little earbuds. The seashell radio, yeah. Yeah, the seashell radio that's plugged into her ears, and she's listening to music, and she's in her bed, and he realizes that she's, like, taken too many sleeping pills. Um, And he calls these guys who aren't even doctors who show up and, like, pump her stomach, and he's all mad that they're not doctors, and the guy who, like, I read him in, like, a you know new york plumber voice is like oh we get not we get nine or ten of these suicides a night what do you want and he's like oh my god i'm walking here i feel like we do and i'm walking here thing i'm pumping here i'm pumping hey i'm pumping here (laughs) uh and so you get this like you get introduced to the only two female characters in the book um clarice who's like from another planet uh, and revealing the truth in Montag's face, and then you get Millie, who is, uh, who tries to kill herself, and then the next morning doesn't even remember that it happened. With his de- depressing dystopia wife. Yes, his dystopia. And the wife. women in this book exist only to have an effect on the way a man thinks. That's so true. don't get excited. <laughs> That's true. So you want to talk about Millie's TVs, Andrew? Yeah. Okay. So this this gets back to the the distraction and the pop culture yelling that we talked about earlier but in this world televisions are wall sized and you 
like some people have replaced all the walls in their living room with with these big televisions. The Montags have only replaced three of the walls, though Millie would like a fourth. And it's just people who have been like the the picture has been altered and the sound has been altered to make it sound like they're saying your name and they basically just shout at shout nonsense at you. Yeah. Continuously and that's it's, supposed to that's what passes for entertainment, I guess. Imagine a soap opera with any pretense of plot removed. Because he's even asking her at one point, like, what who are they and what do these people do? And all she can say is their names and like who they're angry at. Imagine if like self insertion fan fiction was boiled down to its worst parts and then put on TV. I think this is this is it. <laughs> sure. Cause it they're using he even references like as you said, technology that like scrambles the image. And that's sort of a real thing. I don't know if you've ever seen those creepy YouTube videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you can like plug words into someone's mouth and like just kind of massage the image a little bit. I mean, like a superhero movie just came out where they digitally remove someone's mustache instead of just making him shave his mustache. So That's we're getting true. we're getting all kinds of stuff going on. And they here. did a bad job, but they'll get better. At it. No, no, I don't want them to though. <laughs> uh, and in these early chapters, we're also, as you said, he is an unreliable narrator. He guy is alluding to some stuff that we don't get the full background on for a while. He keeps like looking at like the vent in his hallway and he he remembers a meeting he had with a man on a bench, but he doesn't really tell us he's not even in control of those memories. Right. You know, they're just like happening to him. And he doesn't like he doesn't know what's happening to himself. Like he's you know, he's he, this the meeting with with Clarice um, has sort of shaken him in in a way that, like the the, his foundation was already cracked. I guess to like use some weird house metaphor that I guess I'm in the middle of now. <laughs> and then sh- and then they met, and she then then the floodgates broke open. My metaphor is hopelessly mixed. Already. I don't want it's a terrible. house with floodgates. <laughs> Help me out of my house. I did bad. So he leaves his house. He goes to work. And he goes to work at the firehouse, which is you sit around and let you play cards just like a normal cartoon firehouse from any cartoon you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Except there's a giant robot dog called the Mechanical Hound that might be evil. We don't know. Uh, its only purpose is to kill. And it can smell <laughs> you. <laughs> I think that's pretty, that's pretty strongly suggests evil. Yeah. That its only purpose is to kill. to kill and be good well and i think at one point montag is like it's pretty smart isn't it sad that it's only smart for killing and one of the guys like i think the firemen are like yeah whatever dude it's just a robot dog Uh, don't worry about it and he doesn't think it likes him and we get this kind of like maybe he's guilty vibe but we don't know what i think feels guilty his guilt is strongly implied and we and we don't know if he feels guilty because he's thinking about some, like he's having these thoughts, or if he's guilty because he's actually done something. It's just not clear at this at this stage yeah. of the book. Uh, and this is when we get to that passage you alluded to, Andrew, the first like kind of Beatty explanation passage where they Montag's like, but like 
why burn books again? Well, like, so we we've we've skipped something. So there's there's the Clarice step, but then there is a they get called to a job. Oh yes, they, I was just they, before that. I was just before they, that. But go ahead. They yeah, show yeah, up yeah. at this house. Well, yeah, yeah. You were talking. I I was thinking of like the first big like super long Beatty monologue. But what do you yes. want to do your thing? Well, just that we he we get this sense from Montag that he is like, but why these books and like what. Would it be so bad if people had books? And that's when they burst out the, the like the rule books that are like we've been doing this for two hundred some right, years. Yeah, like Montag based on something that Clarice said is like, did firemen always exist to burn books? Like, didn't we used to fight fires instead of making them? And yeah, and then no dumb dumb book, um, no idiot. We're not called anti firemen. It does kind of make sense that a fireman would. <laughs> Like a baker doesn't get rid of bread. Are there are there any <laughs> other jobs that are named for stuff that you're that you try to fight? I am sure. Like like policemen police, teachers mm-hmm. teach, mm-hmm. plumbers plum. They plum or do they fight plumbing? That they, might be Well, one. no, they plum and they fight turtles. Oh, and good goombas. point. Uh-huh. Goombas and stuff. Okay. Um, Jake in the chat suggests bullfighter. Oh, that's good, but that has. Fight I guess in you the do name. still. You're still fighting the bulls. See, yeah. But no, but people do use the phrase firefighter. So maybe okay, it's sure. just wrong if we say fireman. Fireman, sure. Mm, fireman okay. sounds like a JRPG. <laughs> I'm the fireman. I'm a fireman. I'm a palette swap of the Iceman that you'll meet in a couple of levels. I love Mega Man One. Here's the five <laughs> rules of fireman dumb. Answer the alarm swiftly, start the fire swiftly, burn everything, report back to firehouse immediately, stand alert for other alarms. That's your job. Which leads me to believe how long how long has this been going on? This is the part that's like if you really think about it it's sort of unsustainable that wouldn't you have just burned all the books by now? Right, yeah, and so the the book wants you to believe this has been going on since 17, I think the actual date is 1790, I saw it as I was flipping through my highlights earlier, but um, but then you, like, the time of books and of, like, higher education and, like, the pre-monocultured times are still in living memory in this book. And so I don't think it's as long ago as people would like you to believe. Yeah, I think uh, there's a reference. I couldn't find it. It's in my notes, but I couldn't find it in the book to like 10 years. Like Montag's been maybe doing this for 10 years or something like that. And in mm-hmm. my, I don't know if that's exactly true, but in my I think head, it's close, yeah. it was like, okay, in your city, if everyone got ratted out, like 10 years would be enough to do most of the damage. And so... Most of these firemen most probably are just like sitting around doing nothing all the time. I don't know. I think um, it's, it's implied that that the fires that do happen these days are like they they do go out and do them, but they are more for show. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Now than they are than they used to be. I forgot about it's that. More to, yeah, it's more it to remind people thing. that this is a thing than it yeah. is to actually stomp anything out at this point. Um, so you wanted to talk about this job that then comes out of this scene and it and it sort of changes the game. Right. So they rush to this woman's house like someone is ratted out this woman because she has books in her attic. 
and the firemen go over and they start digging all the books out of the attic and like slopping kerosene all over everything. And the woman won't leave. She just won't leave the house. And they're trying to, they're trying to count down. They're being like, all right, we're just going to torch stuff in like 10 seconds. So if you don't leave, like, so be it. And she like lights a match and torches the whole thing. Yeah, she starts the fire. Yes. And the world keeps It was turning. always burning since the world's been turning, is what sure. you were yeah. Steven Sondheim. Is that what it is that what it Just is? Just stop. <laughs> Isn't that what he yells? Leonard Bernstein oh, yeah. is what you're thinking of. <laughs> Steven Sondheim. <laughs> Stupid. Whoops. Whoops the doodle. Stevens. <laughs> favorite part of that song <laughs> <laughs> oh no just waiting for the chat to catch up to oh that yeah one. no they're oh, getting boy. there oh god why craig why <laughs> says i'll be thank you uh so this kind of freaks him out and as this is one point where we really see uh montag not in control of himself he brings he he takes a book Right, and he and the book is described as like a it's kind of like a living thing and it's in his yeah hands with its own will um, and the words are just kind of like digging into his his skull. Yeah, he doesn't, and, and he, he can't. Yeah. He doesn't know what to do with it. And he goes home, and he's like, he hides it from his wife, and like stuffs it under the pillow on his bed. And Clarice has has sort of disappeared, and he gets the bad news from his wife that she has disappeared for good. Um, that family is gone. And he lies down in bed and is like, I don't want to go work ever again. I don't know what to do. I'm really sick. I think he might puke at one point, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, kerosene, kerosene, which like earlier in the book is described as a smell that he really enjoys, like is now like making him sick. And uh, it is no longer a pleasure to burn. Um, I, think that, I think that happens. Like my um, my mom's dad smoked for his whole adult life. And, you know, tried to quit a few times, but like never successfully did it. And then I don't know what happened if he just if he was in the hospital for a little bit or something. But like one day, just the smell of cigarette smoke on everything started just making like stop sick. And that's Ooh. and that's when he stopped is like it suddenly disgusted him in some mm. weird way. And I think that. that, that yeah. So that yeah, that happens. that read that read pretty true. Yeah, to me, for I sure. Think. Um, so while he's in bed, Beatty comes to his house because he misses work, uh, Montag does. And this is like, for me, the scene of the book. Like, this is the book. I did not remember this because I missed the point. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there's like the cool visuals that happened at this book. And like in the background, there's this threat of nuclear war. And I guess in this future, like nuclear wars happen regularly. And we, the America won a bunch of them. You, so you get an impression, just a little tiny bit of a 1984-esque state of perma war. Yes. Where true. war is ever present, but also... Never talked like about removed enough from everyday life that yeah it's like people talk about oh you'll go away to war for two days and you'll be back and everything always happens to somebody else and yeah. even if you do die I'll just get remarried and it's not anything to worry about yeah um and I don't remember why I started talking about that 
Um, I don't know, man. I'm just letting you, just giving you <laughs> enough rope, I guess. That's my job. But so this is where the the book really kind of lays out what's going on, though. Because oh yeah, because there's there's the burnings and there's the war in the background and there's et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff that like literally happens in the book. But I know Bradbury turned it into a play at one point, and I have to imagine that this feels like one of the pivotal scenes. Cause well, he, and he even, we can, we can talk about it in a little bit, but he added another Beatty scene to the that's play right. version of it that he did. Right. Cause yeah. Cause Beatty is like, I, for, I always forget how much, how good of a character Beatty is. Um, so he comes in, he like sits in Montag's bedroom. Keep in mind that Montag literally has a book under his pillow. Right. Cause Montag is, is, has said, Oh, I'm sick. I'm not going to work today. And, of course, Beatty just knows that, I guess, and comes and Beatty, over. And Beatty swings on by and, yeah, gives him gives him an earful. And he basically gives him a big old pep talk that is like, listen, I know that last night sucked. I know that you we burned a lady alive. I'm not going to say it out loud, but we both know that you took a book. And it happens to all of us. It happens to every fireman at some point in time. But Sometimes so now, you just burn a lady alive. Sometimes it just happens. And you question why you do it. Right. So, like some, you know, you burn a lady alive. You're like, oh, did that really have to happen? It's a comment. It's a just a, it comes with the job. Maybe Workplace we hazard. shouldn't do that. It'll oh, just I get it, Montag. I get it. You need to think about it. So let me give you some stuff to think about. Let me tell you again why we burn the books. And he gives this big speech about why a speech. So, why society is the way it is. And the first couple parts are like, um, we invented mass media and we had radio and TV and everyone started getting dumb. And everyone wanted things fast, 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 and easy, 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 and had to cater to the lowest common denominator, and no one wanted to think anymore, and everything, you know, starts getting cut down, and like you'd get, you wouldn't buy Hamlet anymore, you'd just buy the one page, page Reader's Digest version, and then, and then also there's all sorts of entertainments, there's sports, and isn't you could play baseball or golf or basketball or yeah, race your I've, car or I've got some. Um, so Graham says I totally forgot this happened, but the scene is coming back to me as you describe it, and yeah, that, that's kind of similar to my experience of it. But um, this is Beatty. Uh, picture it: 19th century man with his horses, dogs, carts, slow motion. Then in the 20th century, speed up your camera. Books cut shorter. Condensations digest tabloids. Everything boils down to the gag, the snap ending. Classics cut to fit 15-minute radio shows, then cut again to fill a two-minute book column, winding up at last as a 10- or 12-line dictionary resume. I exaggerate, of course. The dictionaries were for reference. But many were those whose whole, whose sole knowledge of Hamlet, uh, you know the title certainly, Montag. It is probably only a faint rumor of a title to you, Mrs. Montag. Whose sole knowledge, as I say, of Hamlet was a one-page digest in a book that claimed, now at last you can read all the classics, keep up with your neighbors. Do you see? Out of the nursery, into the college, and back to the nursery, there's your intellectual pattern for the past five centuries or more. Andrew. Craig. I, thi I think Ray Bradbury would have hated our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little, I don't think... If he could have gotten over the fact that podcasts exist, I think he might have hated our podcast. <laughs> Uh, 
maybe I I would like I would like to say that we would get a three star review from Ray Bradbury <laughs> because we do encourage reading. Sure. But we're also dumb idiots. Yeah, that's true. He would he would take us to task for missing mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jordan in the chat says that this justification feels a lot like the visit to Kamazots in Wrinkling Time. And yeah, there's some similarities there um, in terms of like reducing individuality of thought. Um, I think there's a later passage, either from another character or from Beatty, that talks about how the fact that books can hold more than one idea in them um, is troublesome to people, and you got to get rid of it. But I want to get to this next section in Beatty's speech, Andrew, which I certainly forgot about okay uh so he lays out this idea of mass media he lays out this idea of like mass entertainment uh and then it takes a turn and i'm just gonna quote Beatty close to verbatim here now let's take up the minorities in our civilization shall we bigger the population bigger the minorities don't step on the toes of the dog lovers, the cat lovers, doctors, lawyers, merchants, chiefs, Mormons, Baptists, Unitarians, second-generation Chinese, Swedes, Italians, Germans, Texans, Brooklynites, Irishmen, people from Oregon or Mexico. And he later goes on to say, it didn't come from the government down. There was no dictum, no declaration, no censorship to start with. Uh, technology, mass exploitation, and minority pressure carried the trick. Thank God. Uh, another part colored people don't like black little black sambo burn it white people don't feel good about uncle tom's cabin burn it so he go he as this article this ugh, this point he makes is like by attacking things that were offensive to them everyone helped censor books yeah and yeah and and when we and when we when i read this i was like wow this is this is pretty much the argument of someone who would say a phrase like political correctness gone mad yeah yeah and yet like it is a thing that could happen but i just i just can't people who want like they, they just want entertainment for some people to not come at the expense of oppressed people. <laughs> yeah. And I don't feel like that's a huge ask. Like I think you can you can comment on the differences in our human experience without exploiting or like denigrating people. Well, and you can also portray I don't know. you can portray exploitation in your fiction. You can portray uh bigotry in your fiction or in your stories and then it's a matter of like well but is your is the presence of your story perpetuating oppression i think that's where you and i come down right is that Mm -hmm. that's what like that's the question that we would ask um so there's a passage from a coda that uh bradbury added to fahrenheit 451 and it's talking about some of the censorship that's gone on and the attempt to some sense some folks complaining about passages in the martian chronicles and he says um the point is obvious there is more than one way to burn a book and the world is full of people running about with lit matches uh every minority be it and then he lists another 
bunch of them that include octogenarian, Zen Buddhist, women's lib slash Republican, Foursquare Gospel, uh, feels that it has the will, the right, the duty to douse the kerosene, light the fuse. Every dimwit editor who sees himself as the source of all dreary blancmage, plain porridge, unleavened literature, licks his guillotine and eyes the neck of any author who dares to speak above a, ri- a whisper or write above a nursery rhyme. Boy, a and pretty I, dim I, view of editors there from all Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Thanks, And bud. I just, I was reading an article about free speech this morning. I was reading about it in The Atlantic and it was contrasting two versions of free speech that we like concepts of it that we inherit from like the time of plato and and sophocles and socrates right mm-hmm. that like there's a version of of free speech which is equal access to public debate and then there's a version of free speech which is like speaking truth to power in a way that's like you know i'll say what i want and if people get mad about it like that's that's sometimes the point um is that like can you condense that down to are you triggered did i trigger you well and he was and this article actually i think it was uh teresa something it's in the atlantic that just came out this today i think um it was basically saying like it's been reduced to that it's been reduced to offending for offense sake and then the other side is basically when you kind of no platform people who are in their own rights like offensive and and oppressive personalities like your milos and whatnot Uh um And just that there is probably a middle ground, but it is useful to think about where both of those ideas start and also how both of those ideas could be carried too far. And I think Bradbury would argue more for the idea that you could just, you should be able to put down whatever you want, even if it offends people, because that's part of your story and maybe that's going to change the world. I don't know. Um but yeah, I was I definitely did not remember running into this argument in this book. Well, yeah, and I just I even if we had been in a position to to understand and appreciate all the points the book was making, like I don't think that like I think the the conversation, like the pop culture conversation about like representation and all that stuff has, yeah, has sure. changed so much even in like the last 5 years or 6 years. Yeah. That um that we probably are thinking about this differently now than we would have back in back in like 2010 or 2009 or something. Yeah, I think because to to hear Bradbury tell it, it's a lot of individuals all collectively going like going at other individuals in a way that like builds up into censorship, and at least what you and I are sort of you know advocating for it by listening to a lot of other people who talk about it way smarter than i personally ever will um (laughs) is to be like yeah but there's like us there's centuries of systemic stuff that we should all be cool with undoing and here are the ways in which like these five things that you're doing in your industry and these five things that you're doing in your industry are like perpetuating white supremacy or misogynistic you know, systems or whatever it might be. Yeah. And uh, it, it's a fine line. It's a messy line to even describe it as a line probably does it a great disservice. Yeah, it's true. But I, and it's so just, it's weird it's, to encounter it in this book where it, you're like, yes, yeah, here's this book that everyone goes back to and says like, here's this great book against this great censorship. parable against censorship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so many of us associate 
that type of censorship with like a 1984 top-down government. Yeah. And this book does not have that. The top-down government took advantage of a cultural desire. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I find the most interesting about this book is it's it's not about this book isn't about the dangers of a government, like a power, like an abusive government gone mad. It's the it's more about here's what happens. Here's what people will can and will do to themselves in the absence of like a good government or external body that like exists to enforce norms and stuff like that. But um, sure. Yeah. Um, I think the, I think the kind of censorship that Bradbury's like, if, if you want to extrapolate it out to modern times, I think the kind of stuff he's taking umbrage with are the, um, the like the the college kids who like wouldn't read a book because they're I don't know I, I'm I'm I feel myself framing this in in like bad terms because that's the way it's often written about. But when you when you read those hand ringy stories about college kids who don't want to attend a class because they're offended by the material or whatever, like that's the kind of censorship that Bradbury would take umbrage with i think yeah in, in yeah. our in our modern times and that's that's another it's another complicated conversation like i we got i think we gotta move beyond that dead white male canon but i think it's also worth interfacing with some of that stuff as long as as the problems with it are like part of the curriculum i think that's the main problem is that issues yep. aren't part of the curriculum and we just need to get to a place where they are i don't know i'm just i, I i'm really self-conscious that this is the conversation that we're having live because i really don't know what i think about it sometimes yeah I, and that's i think i when not confronted with a book that uh moves me such and impresses me such and is otherwise very interesting and scary and and this argument presents things that are interesting and scary in them and yet I find myself disagreeing with it or like not feeling comfortable with it or wishing I could find a solution for it. Um, on the one hand, I'm like, well, I don't know about that, Ray Bradbury. And then on the <laughs> other and on the other hand, I'm like, okay, good. You did your job. Like you did not. Yeah, he, he said that he's in writing science fiction. He's not a predictor of the future. He wanted to prevent futures. Um, and so... I think with this book, he imagined a thing that he hoped wouldn't happen, but he could see happening. He does not present solutions. Um, he presents like a after it. It's telling. So like the rest of this book, we meet a guy named Faber, who is an old dude who knows about like the underground book network. Um, it's worth noting that Montag and Faber are like names of like a paper company and a pencil company. Um that Bradbury just kind of put in this book subconsciously. But the like the big showdowns of this book have to do with Faber and Brad and and Beatty um and Montag like running away into the woods and meeting this underground book hobo network, like hobo college professors. Yeah, then, right. Like, it's a it's almost like it almost gives me a like giver type vibe. It does. It does. Because they're they're saying, you know, we've developed some kind of system where we can kind of ring like if you've ever read something, we have a system we can use to ring it out of you if we can ever get to a point where society will accept it again. Like 
and, and to, the, to the point where they are referring to themselves as like the book that they are responsible for preserving. And then here's where it gets pretty bleak and Bradbury does not. Oh, no, this a, is. Yeah, this is the bleak part. <laughs> does not. Get, this is specifically the bleak part. A great solution is that um, this war that's going to happen is super imminent. And while Montag has escaped Super and and got you know he's run down the river he's found these these smart hobos and he's gonna be part of their society and they're like we gotta just wait until everything falls apart and then we will be there and like offer what we have to people and help them rebuild because they'll want it we can't come to them now while they're brainwashed we gotta let everything die first and planes like scream across the sky and bombs drop and things go bad yeah they straight up nuke they just, like uh, chicago is, or whatever is it is nuked and you see it briefly in silhouette grander than it ever had been or could be in real life and then it's dust there's an image that i'll i always remember as i'm reading this book and always i'm like wow that was good where like the sky and the city swap places like yeah, right. all the buildings are up in the air just in their same orientation and then fall and then like the guy who Montag meets in this troop is like all right now we're going to start walking that way and we're going to help people and we're going to be pleasant and when folks need something to like get them through the rebuild we'll have these books in our head mm-hmm. uh and that's the it <laughs> and like that's <laughs> that's his solution it, you know like again you're writing this book after we've bombed japan right the two bombs have dropped yeah um we are in we don't know and we you know we still don't know today but i i imagine at the time it was w- a way greater fear of like okay what when does the next one drop? Yeah, like we're we're thinking about like very early Cold War where somebody just dropped a nuclear bomb, so it seems a lot more likely that another one will come soon. Like like Russia's working on it. It's it's a whole like the McCarthyism and early Cold War stuff are two of the external forces that this book is sort of grappling with. Yeah, and and it's interesting then to come at it and and come away with the realization that he is thinking about how individuals function and create and perpetuate systems within these two giant external things like nuclear war and like persecution of people for political beliefs um and then also he's got all of these like all he puts in all these technologies that he hates because apparently he hates tv and radio so much (laughs) (laughs) the most important single thing this is one of the uh hobo sages talking to Montag. <laughs> the most important single thing we had to pound into ourselves is that we were not important. We mustn't mm. be pedants. We were not to feel superior to anyone else in the world. We're nothing more than dust jackets for books of no significance otherwise. Some of us live in small towns. Chapter one of Thoreau's Walden in Green River. Chapter two in Willow Farm in Maine. Why, there's one town in Maryland, only 27 people. No bomb will ever touch that town. Is the complete essays of a man named Bertrand Russell. Pick up that town almost and flip the pages, so many pages to a person. And when the war's over, someday, some year, the books can be written again. The people will be called in one by one to recite what they know and will set it up in type until another dark age 
when we might have to do the whole damn thing over again. But that's the wonderful thing about man. He never gets so discouraged or disgusted that he gives up doing it all over again because he knows very well it is important and worth the doing. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Just think about it for a second. Just thinking about it for a second. I'm also <laughs> reading the chat, but yeah. I also it's, like it's it's it goes without saying that the all of the books used as examples of the books that are being remembered are white guy books. Yeah, I would I made a note about that. He doesn't name a single lady author. And that's a, like a, that's a it's a product of the time whatever whatever, but if we are ever in this situation, um man are non-white non-dudes gonna gonna come off badly dude dude doesn't even mention like jane austen like come on who who is that edith wharton who's that you gotta get those nice those those nice bell brothers currer and whoever they sound they are on the up and up uh, so two questions from the chat as we kind of wind down. And then if we have time, I want to talk about how I felt personally attacked by this book. Um, <laughs> uh, Jake asks, could the current net neutrality debate be a parallel to the concept of book burning? Um, as put in, in so the- far as it is about giving companies, I guess, or like giving some big external force, the, ability to decide what is easy to get and what is not yep sure i think it's intertwined a little bit there's also the as we talked about college students the the phrase that i've encountered a lot in the last only in the last couple of months is this idea of like no platforming which is when you say like this well, this we really accept- hate super mario games <laughs> <laughs> um that uh what Okay, this author is very much a racist or a homophobe or a transphobe, and we're not gonna like we're gonna at actively try to keep them from coming to our campus or something, right? You you have seen versions of this online where like uh, some white supremacist sites but have not been all dropped, of them. but not all of them. But the sites have been dropped by their hosting services um, if the hosting service has like a PR team that is human and moral <laughs> like and again it like it is not a legal thing um and i don't know that we've really figured out what the right to free speech is in those sections but like europe has different laws than america does vis-a-vis hate speech and stuff like that um so that's some of the stuff that kind of also rings true with net neutrality and how that could go i guess yeah it's it's related it's it's this big it's this big muckety thing where where we're we're using all these platforms every day, like from Facebook to Twitter to Reddit to like Pinterest and Snapchat and like everything where we basically have to trust these largely unregulated, gigantic, like monolithic companies with being like neutral arbiters of whatever. Yeah. And um, I don't think this is all net neutrality. Like net neutrality is more about the um, mechanics of how the internet works yeah, more so yeah, yeah, than yeah. the, the, the content of the internet. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's thorny. And and the, even the thing with the white supremacy sites getting banned is like, yeah, we can feel good about that because we're not white supremacists, but 
what happens if like GoDaddy or whoever, like some gigantic um, titan of the industry is run by somebody who is sympathetic to these views and then they start shutting. And then there's legal precedent uh, for. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the, the other question uh, from Melissa, which chapter of which book would you be? So tag yourself. Tag yourself as which chapter in which book. If if you're in the apocalypse and you got to carry a chapter in your head, Andrew, what is it going to be? Hmm. Interesting. Is, is it going to be a passage from Lord of the Rings? I think it would be the um, exposition chapter from Fellowship. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to think what that one was called. I'll, I'll do that while you... I gotta think what it would be. There's a there's a passage in Infinite Jest that I really like that I would I would want to go back and make sure I actually have. Um, where it's his brother is Mario the brother who has like the disabilities. Um, I, I believe that is the case. Where he is like at a train station, like being painfully friendly to people, and everyone's really. Im- embarrassed by him but he is such a good person that he can't not do it even as he's like suffering during it i would probably want to go learn that and put it to memory or i would probably try to put parts of like waiting for godot in my brain Mm -hmm. um that would come out as mush and no one would believe that it was a book the good thing about waiting for godot is you could you could choose to remember either act and you would have the same experience you would have like the whole play either way yeah that's true That's my favorite. So my favorite thing that's ever been written about the nature of reviewing things, I think, is the passage from Ratatouille, of course. But my favorite review ever written is the one of Waiting for Godot that just says nothing happens twice. (laughs) (laughs) It is the for sale baby shoes never worn of reviews. And I love it so much. Oh, Albie says Lucky Speech from Godot would also be pretty good. Did you find the name of the chapter from Lord I, of the I did not, but I think the true fans will know which one I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, and then I just want to give, not a shout out, but I want to talk about this other part of Beatty's speech where he made me feel very bad about myself. <laughs> um, um, this is Beatty speaking, and he says... Uh, if you don't want a man unhappy politically, don't give him two sides to a question to worry him. Give him one. Better yet, give him none. Let him forget there is such a thing as war. If the government is inefficient, top-heavy, and tax-mad, better it be all those than the people worry over it. Give the people contests they win by remembering the words to more popular songs, or the names of state capitals, or how much corn Iowa grew last year. Cram them full of non-combustible data, chalk them so damned full of facts that they feel stuffed, but absolutely brilliant with information. Then they'll feel their thinking, and they'll get a sense of motion without moving. And they'll be happy because facts of that sort don't change. Andrew. What? We go to Quizzo every week. Yeah, which is what they call bar trivia in Philadelphia. And there was an article on The Ringer uh, by Claire McNear this week that was about that trivia app HQ that I showed you about Jeopardy and about the popularity of bar trivia. And it basically said that in the age of fake news, we are all turning to activities that revolve around indisputable facts. 
And I read this passage and I just felt very attacked <laughs> personally that I am using trivia to cope with a world where things are very uncertain. Sure. Okay. So Graham says that chapter is called The Shadow of the Past, which is which definitely rings a bell. I remember that. Okay. So you brought this trivia HQ app over to my house the other day and we threw it up on my Apple TV. Yeah. And a man was just yelling questions at us. It is from, from a my dystopia. Television. Yeah. And I couldn't, like, you could, the line between that and, like, the two minutes hate is so short. <laughs> like, I could throw a rock from what we did the other night and hit the two minutes hate. I know. <laughs> uh, but if anyone's listening who does play HQ Trivia, what's up? And if you don't, you should go try it out because it's pretty weird. Lordy, Lordy. It feels like something out of a Blade Runner sequel. To be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. which is both part of its appeal and part of how damning it is. Um, anyway, I think that's our show. Right? I think that's the thing. Yeah. Uh, thank you to our lovely patrons uh, who were able to join us. And thank you to all of our lovely patrons who help make this bonus episode content possible. Uh, I think Stuff You've Read Month has been a whopping success. Yeah, it's been a big one. I think we're going to try it. People like this month and people like Spooktober so much that I think we're going to try and do like a mid-year sort of theme month and, and make it a thing a la Spooktober. We haven't thought about it beyond that, but if if you have ideas or suggestions, you know, we're always, we're always open for that kind of thing. And the places where you can send those suggestions are twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod. We also have an email account at overdue pod at gmail.com. Uh, Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They can go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our home on in cyberspace. Uh, up there, you've got links to iTunes, Google Play, RSS, and Stitcher, all ways that you can subscribe to the show. Um, we've also got links to our podcast network, HeadGum, thanks to them. We've got Amazon links to the books that we have read and that we are going to read that you can use to read along with us. We just posted our December schedule on Facebook and Twitter recently and we're going to update the site with that soon but um craig do you have that to hand to just rattle off for people yeah as best as i can remember it we are starting with where the red fern grows then we're going into hitchhiker's guide for the galaxy then i think we're tackling the book thief followed by uh on christmas on santa day uh, the novelization of the Disney film The Santa Claus. I am very, I very much like this thing where we are reading the novelizations of Christmas movies for Christmas every year. And I'm just, I'm wondering if Elf has one. I'm oh, wondering man. if Jingle All the Way has a novelization. <laughs> like it's <laughs> the lower quality film, the better quality novelization is what I always find. I think so, yeah. Uh, so look out for those books. We hope you enjoy December. And uh, yeah, this has been a good one. Yeah, it's been a good one. Thanks so much, everybody. And until we talk to you next, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.